Hey everybody, this is Sarah Krager. I'm an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA, and this is the ICU-EDU podcast. So today we're doing something a little different um, that you can tell me if you like it, hate it, and we'll see if we do this more. But today I'm doing mistakes. Um, because I do this ritual when I'm driving home from my ICU shifts, and I usually do like stretches of night shifts. And um, one of the hospitals I work at is a bit of a drive. And so as I'm driving home, you know, on my hour long drive, I sit and I go through all the mistakes I made during my shifts and why I think I made them. And I try and be pretty concrete about it. And I found it to be actually a really useful process. And I feel like there's now been multiple times where doing that has very literally prevented me from making the same or a similar mistake again. So I find it a very useful process. And I suspect some of you already do something like it. But I think that we don't spend a lot of time talking about mistakes. It's uncomfortable. And often when we do it, it's in like an M&M context. And as much as we try and make those like not blame focused and da da da. I think we just don't talk about our mistakes casually. And also, you know, often when we're doing M&Ms, we talk about like the big mistakes. But I think for me, thinking about all my mistakes, the small ones, and even the ones that didn't result in a bad outcome, um, I think thinking about the small mistakes probably helps me avoid making big mistakes. So today I'm going to talk about three big mistakes or three at least medium mistakes that I think I made on my most recent stretch of shifts. The first one um, was me missing a Fournier's in a trauma patient. So the situation was, it was this guy in his 30s, and he had a pretty significant motorcycle accident. And he was totally neurointact, spinal cord was fine, um, chest was fine, but he had really, really bad pelvic trauma. And he had a bunch of pelvic bleeding and had been taken to IR. Um, and IR had embolized some stuff, and the bleeding had seemed to have stopped, but he'd been in a pelvic binder and was basically awaiting to go to the OR for an X-fix of his pelvis. Now, when I saw him, it's now post-trauma day three, and he still has the pelvic binder on. And I get called by the nurse because he has a paraphimosis. And I go in and, you know, he's miserable. He's in a lot of pain. And, you know, it's the middle of the night and urology is not on site. Um, and we're in the ICU, but I put my ED hat on for a minute and I reduce the paraphimosis. And he feels a lot better. And I noticed that, you know, there's really a lot of edema and he was really, really tender as I'm reducing it. But that's not, you know, at the time, super surprising. I'm like, okay, I mean, sure, he's super tender. Um, and he's a dermatist, but he's had this pelvic binder on. So, you know, I talked to surgery, I loosen the pelvic binder and I sort of try and elevate everything and he feels better and I call it a day. I get another call from the nurse a couple hours later and she's like, you know, can you come see this guy again? Because he's really having a lot of pain and he's miserable and, you know, just like really having a lot of pain and can you come see him again? And I go see him again and um, you know, he's in a lot of pain and the paraphimosis hasn't recurred, but, you know, everything's really edematous. And at the time, um, you know, I examine him and I even remember thinking the words pain out of proportion to exam. 
Like, I remember those words going through my mind. But I'm looking at him and I'm like, yeah, this is a trauma patient. You know, he, I mean, his pelvis hasn't been X-fixed. I just took down this pelvic binder. There's a lot of edema. The edema is definitely worse. Um, and so I give him some pain meds. I ice things and I elevate things. And it seems to work, at least I thought so at first. Come back again, like maybe an hour later. And the nurse is like, no, he's really in pain. Something's wrong. So I examine him again and I'm just like, okay, I don't know what's going on here, um, but something's wrong. And it's like almost morning now because, you know, by this time, this has sort of been going on all night. And so I call the trauma surgeon and I'm like, look, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but something's really wrong. And they're like, well, you know, we're about to take him to the OR to fix the pelvis anyway. So, you know, we're going to the OR. Um, we'll, you know, we'll take him now anyways, because at this point it's like 6 a.m. So they go to the OR and then I get a call from ortho and they're like, he, we, we, you know, went in there and he has fourniers and it's really bad. And, you know, he ended up ultimately like getting out of the ICU and doing okay, but he had a really complicated course. And I was with him all night that night. And I, you know, could have, should have, you know, called earlier. I could have, should have scanned him. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about why did I make that mistake? Um, I think that there were probably three reasons. Um, the first reason was a knowledge gap. Like I just, I'd never seen a Fournier's in a trauma patient before. And it just didn't occur to me. And even though I thought those words, like pain out of proportion to exam, it just didn't occur to me because I didn't know it was an entity and I'd, I'd never seen it before. And I looked it up later and it turns out it is an entity. And, you know, it's something that in retrospect, makes sense, right? Like you have a guy who has a really bad pelvic injury. I don't know if he had a missed rectal injury or what, but either way, a really bad pelvic injury. And then, you know, he has some embolizations, he has a pelvic binder, you know, maybe some ischemic tissue that's now a setup for potential fourniers, you know, or maybe he had some small lacerations there. Who knows? But, you know, when I looked it up later, there are absolutely case reports of this happening. So one, I had a knowledge gap where I just partially didn't think about it because I didn't know it was a thing. Two, though, I think that, you know, maybe I would have gotten there sooner if it wasn't for a red herring thing. And I think that the red herring thing was initially when they called me, he definitely had a paraphimosis like he really did and we had to reduce it. And so I think I sort of was focused on that and like, OK, and I allowed that to sort of explain some of his symptoms. And then, you know, another one was the pelvic binder. Like I was like, it's been up too long. I think we need to take it down. And this edema is probably from that. And so I think both the paraphimosis and the pelvic binder were sort of red herrings for me. And lastly, um, I think the third thing I did wrong was, and I haven't come up with a great one to call this one, but not listening to that little voice in your head. You know, that little voice in your head that like you see a patient and you have this feeling something's not quite right. And, but you're like, oh, but X, Y, and Z looks okay. And the numbers are okay and whatever. And then next thing you know, your patient's falling apart and coding or whatever it is. And that little voice in my head that was like thinking the words, pain out of proportion to exam, like something's wrong. I think on some level, I knew something was wrong. And I think I needed to sort of take a mental pause and listen to that voice. So 
for me, those are the three sort of things I identified in that mistake that I could have done differently. Next one. This was a patient I had in the ICU, and she had bad pulmonary hypotension or hypertension from a combination of obesity, hypoventilation, and COPD. And she'd been in the ICU at this point for over a week and had a really sort of complicated course and, you know, ended up being on epi and milrinone and vasodrips. And we had her on Flolan. We were aggressively diuresing her. And she was sort of now finally getting better. Um, and then over the last, like, you know, 24 to 36 hours, she'd been tachycardic because she'd sort of been hanging out in the 70s up until then, like heart rate in the 70s. Um, and then I come in and the day intensivist is signing out to me and she's super smart and she's like, I'm getting a little concerned because yeah, like her creatinine's coming down and she's doing better still and her lactate's better now and she's still peeing, but she's been really tachycardic today. And so we had a long talk about like, ooh, do we need to work her up for an inside 2 PE because that could be causing it? You know, we check thyroid panels. Do we think she's getting septic? Maybe we'll empirically antibiose her and sort of talking this whole thing through. And um, we talked about it and, you know, sent some stuff. And then all night, um, I sort of would go back and check in and we'd like backed off on our diuresis and started antibiotics and so forth and so on. And, you know, we're working on looking for a PE and she just stayed tachycardic and she's, you know, at 130 basically. And she's just sort of sitting there in the like low 130s all night and nothing we were doing really made a difference. Um, finally, after I'd been on with her almost all night, like shortly before my shift ended, um, I finally sort of go in and look at her monitor more closely um, because I was just sort of checking on her and talking to her a little bit. And as I'm in there, I'm looking at the monitor. And as I'm looking at the monitor, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a flutter. This looks like flutter. So I get a 12 lead and indeed she's been sitting there in a flutter. And then I go and I look back and indeed she'd sort of been sitting in the 70s and then it wasn't like a gradual increase in heart rate. It was an abrupt increase in heart rate. And I remembered that the day intensivist had even sort of said that to me like, yeah, no, I was like looking back and she was normally in the 60s. Then she just went into the 130s and I should have figured out this was a flutter hours ago. You know, she'd been sitting there in a flutter all night and, um, you know, I just like totally missed it for a good 12 hours. Um, and then finally in the morning was like, oh, and started her on some amio and so forth and so on. So what did I do wrong there? What were the things that I think I could have done better? Um, I think that there were three of them. One was a cognitive load problem. So this was a night where it was just one of those nights. Um, and with a lot going on, you know, there were multiple intubations, a whole bunch of really unstable patients, a bunch of really complicated patients. And so I think I just had a big cognitive load. And I thought I knew this patient because I'd been taking care of her for a week. And I just, you know, thought I knew her. And I think in my head was like, okay, she's sort of like somebody, I know what's going on. We have this sort of smaller problem. Overall, she's getting better. And, you know, it was easy to do that because there were all these other patients who were falling apart. 
Thing number two, I think, is what I call the trust but verify problem. And I think this is actually particularly a problem when you work with a lot of really smart people because it's really easy, you know, if whether it's the ED signing out to you when you're the ICU person, if it's a consultant telling you something when you're the ED person, if it's, you know, one of the other intensivists signing out to me who I really respect, you know, you tend to take what they say at face value and fair enough. But we all miss things. We all make mistakes. And so I think it's the trust but verify that if something's not making sense or the patient's not getting better or just what we're doing isn't working, take a second look and don't just sort of automatically go with what you were told and file that away as fact, file it away as hypothesis. So that's the second thing. And I think the third thing was simply a mistake of conscientiousness. You know, we had a woman who was tachycardic. If I sort of had been thinking about it more carefully, I would have been like, wait a minute, she sort of suddenly went into this tachycardia. That sounds a lot like she went into an atrial rhythm, atrial dysrhythmia. Um, one, that was suspicious. Two, um, you know, I just like didn't look closely at the monitor. I didn't look closely at you know, the monitor either on the monitor tech screen or in a room, and I didn't get a 12-lead EKG. And, you know, despite the fact that we talked about it for a long time in sign-out, I sort of missed a conscientiousness step because I didn't really go in there, take a close look at the monitor, and think about it carefully enough. And she ended up doing fine. We gave her some amio, and it wasn't a big deal. Um, but, you know, if we'd let this go on for much too long, then she could have started backsliding and really decompensating. And, you know, like I was, I spent all night with her uh, before I figured this out. All right. Last one. Um, so one of the reasons that I was distracted um, from this lady was I had another patient the same night. And this was a gentleman who was 70 years old, and he had actually been admitted as a bad polytrauma like two weeks previously. He'd been in sort of in the ICU for a week, um, multiple injuries, a lot of ortho injuries, had some X-fix. He had um, pelvic hematomas and then ended up sort of needing a wound vac for a injury to his thigh. Um, his brain was okay, but, you know, then he also had a big hemonumo that required a chest tube and some pulmonary contusions um, and on and on and on. Um, there was nothing major in his belly. And ultimately, he ended up going to a rehab facility to recover. He then comes in after he'd sort of been at the rehab facility for like maybe four or five days. And he comes in in florid septic shock. I mean, this guy was sick. He came in profoundly hypotensive. His temp was like 39.5. Um, his lactate was a million. His white count, he was actually very, very leukopenic. His white count was like 0.8 and super sick septic shock. And his blood cultures grew out gram negative bacilli in two out of two bottles after like, you know, hours, a super short amount of time. And he was on three pressors. You know, we were doing steroids. We were doing broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, and my big question in him was, of course, where is my source? Because he's growing out gram negative. Something's horribly wrong. So um, where's my source? So I pan scanned him because I'm like, you know, he's intubated now. He can't really give me a history. And so I pan scanned him. Um, he had a pretty sizable pleural effusion. And so, you know, put in actually a chest tube in there to be like, is this an empyema? 
And it was just sort of serosanguinous. It was very unimpressive. Um, he had sort of diffuse anasarco when he came in. Like clearly he'd been getting a lot of fluids and maybe had been not having great renal function. And so I think that was sort of left over from the past couple weeks of just getting lots of fluid as a trauma patient, then, you know, probably not getting diuresis in the sniff. And he had some skin changes, but I wasn't sure if those were just anasarca or cellulitis. So I scanned his legs as well to be like, am I missing a neck fash here? And it was basically just like maybe some cellulitis, some anasarca, but didn't see any sort of deep space tissue infections or anything like that. Belly was okay. And the chest scan was like, you know, maybe pneumonia versus aspiration. Um, and it was definitely a pneumonia, but I was like, can I really blame the pneumonia here? I don't know. Like, it's not that impressive. Um, and he's like really, really sick. He's still hypotensive, multiple pressors. I'm giving him a bunch of fluids. I'm trying to get him stabilized. You know, his heart function was fine. I'd sort of convinced myself it wasn't another kind of shock. Um, and then on the CT abdomen, they'd mentioned there's some gallstones and maybe the gallbladder's a little thickened. And so I sort of was looking through the pan scan and I read that reflexively and I was like, okay, I'll, um, I'll send for a ultrasound and I'll get a right upper quadrant ultrasound just to sort of check off the boxes. So I send the right upper quadrant ultrasound and in the middle of this, you know, again, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on. And I was starting to wonder if maybe one of his wounds was infected. And even though the CT was okay, maybe the leg wound that had the wound vac was the problem. Um, then I get the result back. And by now, my shift is almost over. I get the result back on the ultrasound. And nobody actually called me with the result. But I'm looking through his stuff because I just got in to see him. And he's still, like, dying of sepsis. You know, I think now that we call everything sepsis, like somebody has SERS criteria and we're like, bah, sepsis. Um, we forget what, like, real bad gram-negative bacteremic sepsis looks like. And this guy's, like, dying. He's, like, going into DIC, like, bad. And so I'm like looking through one more time just to be like, what is happening? Um, you know, I examined him again. I looked at his wounds and I sort of just like read through and I see on the ultrasound like, okay, looks like maybe the gallbladder wall's thickened and there's some gallstones. And in my head, I kind of glossed over it because I was like, you know, I don't know. This just doesn't make sense to me. Clinical context. He's really anasarchic. Maybe it's thick because of that. He's also, you know, older guy and he can just have gallstones because he has gallstones. Um, and his billy was a little elevated, but he's also in septic shock. So I didn't know what that meant. And I just, I didn't really pay that much attention to it. I kind of glossed over it until I'm giving sign out. And, you know, the day intensivist is like, I mean, it seems like we don't have source control on this guy. And maybe, you know, we just need to do a per coli because really like this is one of the only things we have. And he was totally right. And um, we ultimately did a percoli. And it turned out that that actually wasn't his source. Um, it was fine. And that wasn't the problem. And, um, you know, part of me is like, maybe, you know, part of me was like, I, I think I didn't pay as much attention to it, partially because I was like, just, he was a trauma patient. And I thought it must have something to do with one of his traumas. And I think maybe ultimately, it was a wound infection, because cultures, at the end of the day, the only cultures from the sputum, from the gallbladder, from everything, the only thing that actually grew gram-negative bacilli that were the same thing that ultimately grew from his blood was actually the thigh wound. Um, but that being said, I think this is a case of A, 
the right thing for the wrong reason. And I think a lot of the time when we talk about mistakes, we judge our mistakes by whether the outcome was bad, whether we ultimately, you know, did the quote right thing. But if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it doesn't count. And in this patient who was like dying of septic shock, I should have paid more attention to that ultrasound. I should have been like, we don't have source control. I sort of have a hypothesis, but I have an intervenable thing and this guy's dying of sepsis and I should push for source control with a pert coli as soon as possible. And that is what I should have done. And even though that didn't end up being the problem, it was one of those things that like, okay, I did the right thing, but for the wrong reason. And it could have been the problem. So that's one thing. I think another problem was a cognitive load thing, because again, this was the same night that we just had all kinds of thing going on. And I'd like looked through his stuff so many times. It was almost the end of my shift. I'm trying to like wrap things up. And that ultrasound result popped up. And I just sort of didn't pay that much attention to it because I'm doing multiple things at the same time. So again, I think it was partially a cognitive load thing. And then finally, I think that it was lastly what I like to call a mental reset problem. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think, you know, maybe sometimes you could call it anchoring, but I think really you just get on this train track thing that we do where we get on a certain track with a patient where, you know, it's like the cases where in the morning when we presented at M&M or case conference, it's so obvious, but in the moment it's not because we just get in this track. And the track I was in was I was like, this is a trauma patient and he's, you know, a ways out, but he's, you know, must, this must be related to something with the trauma. And at the end of the day, like maybe, and is that more likely, but he can still have all the other usual things that can make you have septic shock, especially cram negative sepsis. And so I think what I try to make myself do now is just sort of have that mental reset moment when I sort of stop the train and I'm like, am I just on these tracks and going? Let me stop and take a step back and look at this like it's a case conference and try and almost mentally start from scratch, put the pieces all together all over again and make sure that I'm actually seeing the obvious in front of me because I think sometimes when you get on that mental train track, you miss the obvious in front of you. So that is mistakes number one. And again, I know this is a little bit unusual and people don't often talk about mistakes like this. So if you find it useful, not useful, let me know. And if useful, fortunately, I make plenty of mistakes. So we'll have plenty to talk about the next time I do a run of shifts. Thank you guys so much for listening.